We come now to your word and we confess that uh, there is within us at times a reluctance to listen, a reluctance to think. And so I pray that you would uh, remove all of that, take away any resistance that we might have to your word, be it external or internal, Holy Spirit, and enable us to hear, to listen, to believe this, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to throw you a bit of a curve this morning from our consideration of 1 Timothy and ask you to turn to Leviticus in chapter 23. Old Testament book of Leviticus, chapter 23. I want to read uh, beginning with verse 15 through verse 21. Leviticus chapter 23, beginning with verse 15. Hear the word of God. You shall count seven full weeks from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering. You shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall present a grain offering of new grain to the Lord. You shall bring from your dwelling places two loaves of bread to be waved, one of, made of two tenths of an ephah. They shall be of fine flour and they shall be baked with leaven as first fruits to the Lord. And you shall present with the bread seven lambs, a year old without blemish, and one bull from, a her- from the herd and two rams. And they shall be a burnt offering to the Lord with their grain offering and their drink offerings, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And you shall offer one male goat for a sin offering and two male lambs, a year old as a sacrifice of peace offerings. And the priest shall wave them with the bread of the first fruits as a wave offering before the Lord. With the two lambs, they shall be holy to the Lord for the priest. And you shall make a proclamation on the same day. You shall hold a holy convocation. You shall not do any work. It is the statute forever in all your dwelling places throughout your generations. And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest. And you shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. Now, I said I'm going to throw a bit of a curve. We've been working our way through Sunday after Sunday for a number of months now through uh, the epistle, Old Test- I mean, New Testament letter. Uh, of Paul to Timothy, 1 Timothy. It was written 1950 years or so ago, and we've been uh, paying attention to it, uh, in part because it's the Word of God, and, and in part because of, of, of what it speaks to us. You might remember its, its theme and purpose. Paul said he wrote this letter to Timothy so that Timothy would know how he and the church, how he, Timothy, should conduct himself in the church. And so how the church should behave as church. So when we've been reading through 1 Timothy, we've been getting a sense, an understanding of who we are and how we're to live together, how we're to behave. Particularly Timothy, this pastor, it's been words to leadership and how to lead the church and also for all of us then in being the church. And not only that, it's given this purpose why Paul wrote, but but also this information about who the church is. Paul said to Timothy that the church is a pillar and support, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. Now the question is, 
how did the church get to be the dwelling place of God, as he says, you're the household of the living God. How did the church get to be the very dwelling place of God? And how did the church get to be a pillar and buttress, a pillar and support of the truth? How did that happen? Why are we that? Why is it that the Spirit of God dwells within us, dwells among us, that we, as the church, that we are the dwelling place of God upon the earth? And how is it that we became this pillar of truth, this support of truth? How is it that we became the very ones on earth to have this truth of Jesus to be the ones to guard it so that it remains pure, to be the very ones to live it, and be the very ones to proclaim it. Think about what that means. Think about what that says about us as the church. I I trust it doesn't fill you with pride because we know that at least we didn't get to be this because we deserved it. We know that it's the grace of God. And here we find ourselves as those who are the very dwelling place of God, as those who are the pillar and support of truth. So we know it's by his grace, so it doesn't fill us with pride. But think about what that means in the context of our lives, that God, God, dwells among us. That he, God, is here with us now, and that he, God, is with us every place we go, that he, God, is ordering our steps, that, that he, God, is filling us, that he, God, is teaching us, that he, God, is leading us. Not some lesser, but God himself. We're the very dwelling place of God and that we hold as stewards this truth of who God is, who we are, this truth of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We hold it so that we might know it. We hold it so that our children might know it. We hold it so that the world might know it. That is given to us as church. That is given to us as the church of Jesus Christ, obviously, not just to Grace EPC, this particular church, but to the church of Jesus Christ, is given this truth. So the question this morning is, how is it that we became to be the household of the living God? How is it that we came to be this pillar in support of the truth? And I'm asking that question today because this is what has been traditionally called in the church Pentecost Sunday. Now, I didn't expect you to know that. Uh, we, we don't do a lot with this church calendar. Some do. If, if, you're, if you come from a liturgical background or if you come from an Episcopal background or a Roman Catholic background or something like that, you, you may know of this church calendar. Uh, our church early fathers began to develop this way of thinking, and it, it was, came really from an Old Testament understanding of time. In the Old Testament, God marked time by his relationship with his people. And so there were feasts and festivals set aside each year that would mark out time. They were often agricultural in in nature. The Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, or Pentecost, as we've read here, this Feast of Weeks and and the offerings of of, of the new grain and the the loaves and all of that. Plus, 
than tabernacles which would come in, in the fall, which would sort of the, be the final um, look at harvest. All the harvest was not only in, but the grain had been threshed and the grapes had been pressed and everything was done and the people lived in the provision of God and they would mark out time this way. But each one of those had, had, a, had a link, if you will, to God's relationship with his people, the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread with Passover and it, the people would remember during that time that God had made a substitute for them so that they could live and be delivered from Egypt and from slavery and all of that. Then even, even Pentecost coming later was known as, as the time of the giving of the law because God brought them out of Egypt uh, and then brought them to Sinai where they received the law. So at least later, at least in the time of the New Testament, it was known this time of Pentecost as, as a commemoration of the giving of the law. People would remember that. And, and then tabernacles, people would remember the fact that during the wilderness as they left Egypt and got to the promised land that God protected them and, and provided for them. And it was a gracious provision. They had sinned against him. They had not trusted him. Put them on this wilderness journey for 40 years and, 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 and yet fed them with manna this gracious gift he gave them to keep them alive, protected them physically and so forth, all of that. There were the, 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 the Sabbaths each week. There was a day of rest when people would stop from their work and gaze upon God, and God would say, I want you to remember me. So, so God marked time by his relationship with the people. So it came into the church through various means that, that, that people said, well, we could, we could mark time as well by the life of Jesus. And so we have Advent, right? And then this great little celebration called Epiphany, asking the question, who is this Jesus really? How, how does he manifest himself among us? This time of Lent as we think about the life of Jesus, uh, as, he, uh, as he gives himself for us, this Passion Week of Holy Week, uh, of beginning with Palm Sunday, ending with Easter, and then this Eastertide season where we think of the, of, of the, the appearances of Jesus and then then we have various days as well of Christmas Day and Palm Sunday and Monday or Holy Thursday and Good Friday and, and Easter Sunday. And then ultimately the, we see the day of Ascension and then this one, this day of Pentecost. So, so you can see how if we followed all of this, and some of you do, how if we followed all of this and thought about all this, we would each year be certain to get through the life and the work of Jesus. And, and so on this day, it's been known in the church as the day of Day of Pentecost. And so as I was thinking about that, because I kind of, kind of do that in my own life, this is the rhythm of my life, you can tell I know it well, and I think these things through, and various times of year, if you push me, I'm, I'm in a particular mood because of what I'm thinking about in terms of the life of Jesus, but you don't have to do that. I don't, I don't drag you all through that, but that's just me. But, but this day of, of Pentecost, I was reminded... And it was on this day that the Holy Spirit came in, in, into the life of the church, if you will, brought us together as church, as Jesus would put it, baptized us in the Holy Spirit in such a way that we became the dwelling place of God. In such a way that we became the pillar and support of truth. So I want to recast my questions like this. How does knowing that the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost help us to know why and what it means for us to be the very dwelling place of God. How does knowing that Jesus, I'm sorry, how does knowing that the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost help us to know why and understand what it means that we're a pillar in support of the truth? All right, are you with me? All right. I know I'm making you think way harder than you want to. 
and it's going to get worse. I want you to think with me, all right? It's important that we know and understand who we are. It really is. And we don't get there by not thinking about it. We get there by thinking about it. We don't get there by not engaging in it. We get there by engaging in it. So come with me. Let's engage with this and think through uh, this day of Pentecost, this coming of the Holy Spirit. Now, you might remember if you were listening or know this just from your own reading in Acts in chapter 1. I read this this morning as just a reading about the Holy Spirit. I was contemplating all week. I had a hundred verses before me, various passages. What can I read about the Holy Spirit? And I said, well, just give them the basics, just give them the events. And so that's what I, I did. But you remember that after the resurrection of Jesus, he made appearances to his disciples. And, the, and Luke lays out for us, it's, as he writes the book of Acts, Luke lays, lays out for us in the very first chapter this occasion where Jesus came and met with his disciples right before, it appears, he ascended, right before he left, right before he ascended. And he did that before the very eyes. And, and you remember that he gathered them together. And Jesus said this, verse 4 of Acts 1, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem. He says, stay right here in Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father. And so you you get the sense that they knew that something had been promised to them. Something had been promised to them from the Father. And here's how Jesus lays it out. He says, you heard from me, this promise of the Father, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So Jesus says, I've already told you about this. And Jesus had told them about this. And that even wasn't utterly new news because this Holy Spirit had been spoken of at various occasions throughout the Old Testament. For instance, in Ezekiel in chapter 36, as Ezekiel the prophet is laying before the people, not only their restoration, but a time that was future for them, a time that was to come, he said like this, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So the prophet Ezekiel is saying, listen, Israel, I know your waywardness, but there a day is coming when God is going to cleanse in a way and God is going to bring his spirit in a way that his very spirit will dwell permanently within you. And then, of course, the prophet Joel speaks of this as well. Joel in chapter 2, verse 28. And it shall come to pass, he writes afterward, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Meaning... Everyone will speak the things of God upon whom this spirit comes. The result will be they'll prophesy that as they'll speak the truth of God. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your younger men shall see visions. When I was young, I liked that because it told me I was seeing visions. Now that I'm older, it means I don't have the strength for that. I just dream. But we're seeing the same thing, you see. Even on male and female servants, that is, even on the servants, the Spirit comes. In those days, 
God says through the prophet Joel, I will pour out my spirit. And so when Jesus comes on the scene, you might remember that it is John the Baptist who says of Jesus, John says of himself, I baptize in water, but this one, this one who is to come after me, he'll baptize uh, in or with the Holy Spirit. That is what, how John puts it in. John the Baptist puts it. Luke has it in Luke chapter 3. In verse 16, I'll baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit or in the Holy Spirit and fire, his winnowing fork in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This Jesus, this one, this Messiah is coming, John says. And so when Jesus gets on the scene, it isn't surprising that he speaks of this one who is the Holy Spirit. He speaks of him in John chapter 3, you know, as the one who gives us new new life. John chapter 3 and verse 5. And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That is, as Ezekiel said, as one who isn't cleansed, I'll sprinkle clean water on you, God says, one who is cleansed, forgiven was born of water and the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. He cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. He says it's a work of God upon people's life. The Holy Spirit comes, and he gives this new life. And then in, in John chapter 14, in a very, very solemn, significant, serious moment as Jesus is with his disciples. You know this scene. Jesus is with his disciples. It's a night that he meets with them for this final Passover first communion meal. And he meets with them there. And he speaks to them, not only about his death, which is to come just the very next day, but also he speaks to them of of his leaving them And all of this is just startling to them. And he speaks not only these startling words, but also words of comfort to them. He says, in fact, that another is coming. John chapter 14 and verse 15. Jesus says, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, this promise of the Father. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. Another helper. This word helper is a word that's also used of Jesus. Uh, In Greek, it's paraklete or parakletas, which means one who comes alongside and supports, who helps, who defends, who's our advocate, who shores us up, who enables, you see. I will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. Notice how Jesus refers to this one who is the Holy Spirit. He says he's the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. So you get the sense that while Jesus is going, he's not going to leave us alone. He's going to send this other helper to us. And this other helper must be related to Jesus. I will not leave you as orphans. Uh, I will come to you. 
We know he's going to come to us in his second coming, but how is he going to come to us? How is he not going to leave us as orphans? How is he going to come to us? Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live. You also will live, and that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. So Jesus is saying, listen, this is what's going to happen. The spirit of truth is going to come, and I'm going to come, and I'm going to come. He's going to bring me this very spirit of truth to live among you, to live within you. You in me and I in you. We become, because of this Holy Spirit, the very dwelling place of Christ, the very dwelling place of God. And we don't feel it, necessarily. We don't see it. It's not that we gain weight. Can't blame that on the Holy Spirit, right? It's a little extra now that I'm a Christian. That comes from the potluck suppers. Doesn't come from the Holy Spirit, you see. Right? I remember the first time I, each kid I would say to them, you know, if you believe in Jesus, the Holy Spirit lives in you. And they would say, I believe in Jesus. And each one of them, I knew exactly what they were going to do and I watched them. They didn't know I watched them. But I watched them and they all went and found a mirror and they went. Right? It's a great response. We live spiritually within us. There's something. There's no other way to say it other than it's this close as to be in you, aware of you. You're in the very sphere of the Holy Spirit. You, you enter in as you would enter into a room. You enter in and you're now in the very presence of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is in, in, in your presence. It's that close. God himself. We don't see it. We don't feel it. But yes, it's true. And notice then in verse 25 of chapter 14 of John, Jesus says, These things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, promise of the Father, he'll teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. People say, how did we get this New Testament? How do we get these words of Jesus? How, how do we know that they're true? How do we know that all that what comes from this New Testament is really true? And the answer is that Jesus had said, promised that his spirit would come and draw this out of them and and enable them to recall it and to know all the things that he taught them. You remember after the ascension of Jesus, he took his disciples aside and he taught them. The people said, "I I wish we had the details of what Jesus taught them. And you know, we do. We have it in the New Testament. He taught them. They talked about it. They wrote it. This is is what the Holy Spirit does. He's into truth. When he arrives and dwells, what comes with him is truth. The very truth about, the very truth about Jesus. And then in chapter 15 and verse 26, Jesus goes on to say, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, promise of the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. And so now Jesus is getting it out here. He's saying, listen, this Holy Spirit who comes is going to remind you of me. He's going to teach you of me. And and he's going to witness of me so that you can know me. So that you can witness of this truth as well. And then in chapter 16, verse 12, Jesus writes, Jesus says, 
I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he'll guide you into all truth, for he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he, whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said, he will take what is mine and declare it to you. It's, again, you remember... This is just happening in an evening. This is just happening in a relatively brief period of time. And how many times Jesus tells them again, here's the promise of the Father. He is the Holy Spirit. He is another one like me. He's going to come in such a way. And when he comes, he brings truth. He brings my truth, the truth about me. He's the one who, who enables you to know me. He's the one who will give you life, as I said, in, you know, way back with Nicodemus. And he's the one, of course, which will speak of me so that you'll know me so that you can be my witnesses. All that set up. So Jesus then meets with his disciples uh, right before his ascension. He says, now wait in Jerusalem. It won't be many days. He didn't tell them exactly when. Don't you hate it when people do that? He didn't tell them exactly when. He says, wait here. Wait here, trust me. Wait here. And the Holy Spirit is going to come. Now, when Jesus speaks of the Holy Spirit coming at this time, it doesn't mean that prior to this time, the Holy Spirit didn't exist. When we read the Bible, we read the Bible, it speaks to us about God. We understand God as one God, three persons. And that's simply how it flows to us. It's how it comes out of the scripture. We don't make this up. We read. If you read through the Bible from cover to cover enough, and you ask the question, who is God? You find that he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. Oneness in the very sense that all of God is God, eternal, has all the attributes of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Threeness in person in the sense that we see by way of task, by way of how God reveals himself, that he is one God, one purpose, one God, but yet Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so Father, we find, primarily is the one who wills, ordains, who plans. Son is the very one who comes to accomplish that which his Father has willed. And the Holy Spirit to come as the very one who applies it to us. So if we think about our salvation, we can understand that we've been saved by God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father planned it. The Father chooses. We read that. The Son comes and executes, if you will, the Father's plan. Ironically, by being executed for those the Father had chosen. And then the Holy Spirit comes, you see, and he applies that work. He gives new life to them. He enables them to believe. He, he reveals Jesus to them in a way that's, that, that, that's irresistible where they grab hold of it and say, yes, that's true. And so this isn't the birth, if you will, of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. I mean, we know that Jesus is eternal. The Son of God is eternal. He didn't first exist at the Incarnation. He was all through the Old Testament. But he comes in the fullness of time, manifested, in the incarnation because that's the right time for him to come to do the work that he's been ordained to do that he's been called to do that he's been sent to do that he's agreed to do and now on Pentecost you see the spirit comes in a way to do that which he had to wait until then to do 
which is to glorify Jesus. To say, this is who Jesus is. This is what Jesus has done. Believe in him. And so then on this day of Pentecost, this Holy Spirit is poured out. Now think about that. That day, all had been said. The disciples, it appears, didn't know it was going to be on that particular day. They were waiting as they had been instructed. And in Acts chapter 2, we read, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Yes, they were. Now it was Pentecost. Now I read about Pentecost, really, in Leviticus chapter 23. It was an Old Testament festival feast, really called the Feast or the Festival of Weeks. And what would happen on this day of Pentecost is that when the first grain would appear, they would pick it. And they would wave it before the Lord and say, thank you, we know what's coming. Right? We know what's coming, thank you, and, and make an offering. And then seven weeks later, seven Sabbaths later, and then the next day after that, so 50 days, Penta 50, would fall on a Sunday. Then they would come before the Lord with this great offering, this great sacrifice. And I read about the various animals that were sacrificed. But on this day as well, and keep this in mind, on this day there were two loaves of bread made, a grain offering or what could be known as a meal offering, a food offering. They actually made these loaves. And what was unique about these loaves was not the fact that they were made with fine flour. All the loaves that went before the Lord were made with fine flour, this fine flour being the sense of the purity of God. But what was unique about this offering was that they added yeast. They added leaven. That didn't normally happen. And the reason it didn't normally happen was leaven, in the sacrificial understanding, always represented impurity. But on Pentecost, on this day, as they came before the Lord, they mixed pure flour, threw down a little oil in there to keep it all together, and this leaven, two of them, and they took them and put them before the Lord. Now here they are, you see, on this day of Pentecost. Now Pentecost was one of the feasts of in, in ancient Israel when all men had to go to Jerusalem. There were three such feasts, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles, when the men of Israel had to come. Now, they would come from all over because you remember that back in the Old Testament there was, a, there was an exile, and then there was a coming back from exile to Jerusalem. But not everybody came. In fact, most didn't. And so you have Israelites scattered out all over the known world, you see. And so they would build these synagogues so that on Saturday they could worship together. And then on holy feasts and days, the men would come to Jerusalem. Sometimes all the men, sometimes representative of various synagogues would come. But that was what they would do. And so here you have Jerusalem filled with Jewish men who've come for Pentecost. And the disciples of Jesus waiting for this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were, where they were sitting. Now that, the, the word for wind there means something like an express train or a tornado or a sonic boom kind of wind. 
It, it was huge, and the sound was great, so much so that it attracted a lot of attention, and people came to where the disciples of Jesus were. It could have been that earlier in the day they had been at temple, where they should have been on the day of Pentecost. It could have been that they were in the temple. It could have been that this was a break that they had periodically. Nine o'clock in the morning would be a good time for a break. They could have started at 6 a.m. in the temple, and so now is the time for a break. And as they take this break, they come into this room, this place, and boom, here comes this great wind. And then the, these tongues looked like, they weren't real tongues, but it looked like, that's how, that's how it was described, these tongues of fire on their heads. You know, what's all that about? Well, here is the very presence of the spirit of truth. The very spirit of God, fire. Fire represents in scripture often God and his purifying effects. Remember Moses at the burning bush, there was fire, but it didn't consume. And so nobody's heads were singed. But the very presence of God, fire, right? Their tongues saying, we're going to say something here. We're going to communicate something here. Well, of course, something's going to be communicated because this one who comes is the very spirit of truth. This is exactly what Joel talked about. This is exactly what Ezekiel talks about. This is exactly what Jesus talked about. This is exactly what John the Baptist talked about. They're being baptized with fire. And so the Holy Spirit in this baptism is poured out upon them, you see. That's how the scripture puts it. Good Presbyterian baptism language. Right? Poured out upon them. And that's what happens. You see, it's poured out upon them. And they're baptized, meaning that they're identified with. They become one with. They're in the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is in them. They're now in the very sphere of this Holy Spirit. And they become Holy Spirit people. And this fire came upon them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And then verse 5 says, look what, what was true here. There were people from all over the known world here. Of course it was Pentecost. What a good idea for the Holy Spirit to show up then. So everybody could hear it. But what was amazing, what was miraculous, is that these men began to speak languages they did not know. In fact, they began to speak them in such a way that they were even speaking the individual dialects of people. So if there had been a southerner there, they would have heard lots of y'alls, right? There were north, the people from the northeast, there are lots of you guys. Who knows what Californians would have heard? They spoke the very dialects, you see. And it was such an amazing... Think about that. And it was such an amazing thing that the, the, the people around them who heard this were shocked because they looked at these disciples of Jesus and said, they're just Galileans. And that was an insult. That meant they're uneducated, uncultured men. It would be like if we were sitting around and we heard somebody say something profound and we said, how could that be? They went to Mizzou, Right? How could that be? That's a sense of this, you see. And so, they're Galileans. How could this be? Everybody said there's no reason that this could really be true. How could they be speaking like this? But you know what they were speaking? And this shouldn't even need to be in the text. We should just simply know this from the expectation of the promise of the Father. Because given what everyone has said, especially Jesus has said, about this Holy Spirit who has become the Spirit of truth, what would you expect 
someone to say if the Holy Spirit came upon them. You would expect them to speak of the great and mighty acts of God. Primarily, particularly, wouldn't you expect them to speak of the mighty acts of God through Jesus? That's what the Holy Spirit came to do. He came to bear witness of Jesus, to glorify Christ, to speak of him, to teach of him, to remind of him. And so don't you think that when there's a group of people upon whom the Holy Spirit has come, that they're going to talk about Jesus. And they're going to speak that which is true about him. In fact, don't you think that's the real evidence of a person having the Holy Spirit, being in the Holy Spirit, having been baptized in the Holy Spirit, as one who knows Jesus and is able to speak rightly about him? You see, that's it, you see. In fact, Peter, I didn't read this this morning, but Peter then preaches a sermon, which is, which is amazing because it shows us that Peter could speak one language, probably Aramaic, and all the people understood him. Which tells us they probably didn't need the whole tongues thing in order to communicate this. But God was saying something in the midst of this. I can overcome any barrier. I can overcome anything to give my truth to you. And so then Peter preaches this sermon in Aramaic and and, and they hear it because probably these people who were sent to Jerusalem for this day of Pentecost were bilingual. They probably had their own language, but they probably were the ones who could travel well and go to Jerusalem and speak the language and all of that. It'd be crazy to send somebody as a representative for your local synagogue who couldn't speak the language in Jerusalem. And so there they were. And so Peter speaks to them and they hear it. And what does he speak about? He speaks about Jesus. Here's a man upon whom the Holy Spirit has just come in this dramatic way, and so he speaks about Jesus. By the way, just a quick aside, I won't spend time here. But this was a unique historical event, this day of Pentecost. Nowhere in Scripture do we expect this kind of thing to happen again like this. Well, there are other occasions of speaking in tongues in the scripture, but you'll find that they weren't evangelistic. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul talks about speaking in tongues, and he says, listen, when you're around unbelievers, don't do that. So this is a unique event. And would you expect it to be a unique event? Boom! Here comes the Holy Spirit upon his people, upon the church, so that he can dwell within them, and so that he can witness out of them. Now here, is the significance of the fact that it was on the day of Pentecost. Those two loaves. Nothing's really said about them in the the Old Testament. Nothing's said about them. God just says, do this. But it's startling. If you read through all the Old Testament feasts and festivals, it's startling, it should be, to get to this point where he says, add leaven to the loaves with fine flour. But I suggest no more startling than to say that the Holy Spirit of God can dwell the likes of you and me. That the purity of the Holy Spirit of God can come into the impure you and me. And then take us before God and wave us in his presence and says, this is for you. But you see, that's what happened. On this day of Pentecost, The very Holy Spirit of God, baptized, came into impure sinners like you and me. 
That you see how we came to be the dwelling place of God. And the only reason the Spirit of God could come and dwell such like you and me is because of what Jesus had done to prepare this place that we could be in him and he could be in us. But not only that, you see, on this day of Pentecost, it was this harvest festival. It was this first fruit. It was saying there's more to come. And don't you know that Jesus, when he was resurrected, Jesus on that first Sunday, when it may well have been that in the temple this first grain was being waved and saying, we know there's more to come. When Jesus was resurrected, now we see that there was more to come. The scripture refers to Jesus as the firstborn among many brothers. He said, look, more is coming. And look, poof, on this day of Pentecost. There they were, this harvest. And this commemoration of giving of the law, this time when the people of God would come together and be one, he would say, I'm going, to, I'm going to draw you together, I'm going to make you one because you have this common one Lord Spirit within you. If you remember, way back in Genesis and chapter 11, I doubt that springs any great memory, but let me give you this. The people in those days were building a tower and they were building a tower for their own glory, saying, look what this says about us, how great we are. And you remember what God did? He destroyed the tower, and he separated the people. How? By language. You realize when people are separated by language, people can't speak the same language, then it's very, very difficult for them to get together. talking to somebody recently about my past life as an economist and they said well what's the most valuable thing for the United States of America to be prosperous economically and, and the answer that I've always thought to be true is that we have a huge land mass with all kinds of resources but most importantly we all speak the same language how difficult it is for Europeans and Africans to have that kind of trade because they're always not or miscommunicating. So do you realize that what happened at Pentecost was the reversal of the Tower of Babel? God said, listen, I can overcome all of this. Now that doesn't mean that when I speak English, everybody hears me in their own language. We still have to learn each other's languages, but we do have one language in common, don't we? When a bottom line, when it boils down, we have one language in common, and that language we have in common is what we know to be true about Jesus. What happens when you meet someone from another culture, from another place who may not speak your language and you find out that they're believers in Jesus? You almost don't need to talk. We share that together. Now you see what makes this great for us? What we really have to remember is that we've been called then to be witnesses of Christ. And he has said, I've given to you my spirit. And you say, well, so what? That means everything. He's given us his spirit, though. He dwells here with us. So in his dwelling here with us, what does he do? He empowers us. He strengthens us. He helps us. And he says, he says listen, I can overcome every barrier that exists. Picture the day of Pentecost. What are the barriers that exist for us to be really good witnesses of Christ? 
I would say two things at least. Number one, logistics, and the second, hearts. And on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit in one fell swoop overcame it all. He overcame the logistics. He brought people to Jerusalem from all over the world. He overcame language, even as they spoke. And he overcame the resistance of people's hearts they believed. Now, there were two reactions on that day, and there's always two reactions. One is mocking, but the other is faith. And you see, we then mustn't be deterred by the mocking as they weren't deterred by the mocking. But what we need to say, listen, repent and believe. And you, like us, will receive this gift of the Holy Spirit. You see, this isn't to make us lazy to think, oh, we don't have to do anything. The Holy Spirit's going to do it all. This is to make us confident so that when we walk in the world, we can say, ah, the Spirit of God is with us. The truth of God is with us. We have his word. We have his spirit. I think of the fact that we live in Lawrence, Kansas, and people come from all over the world here. And while we may have language difficulties and cultural difficulties, what gives courage to work with Lens Ministry? What gives us courage to talk to people from other cultures? It isn't because we're so smart and so cute and our cooking so good. It's because we know that the Holy Spirit dwells within us. And we know that he's the spirit of truth. And in the back of our minds always is the day of Pentecost and we don't know how he's going to do it. It's unlikely, quite frankly, that we're going to pick up their language just like that. But he can do it. He can overcome all of that as he calls people to himself. When we teach little kids at vacation Bible school, it's amazing the stuff we teach five-year-olds in this church. And three-year-olds and eight-year-olds and 12-year-olds. It's amazing. But we do it with tremendous confidence. Why? Because we know, because of the grace of God, that the Spirit of God dwells among us. And when we're teaching VBS, when we're, gl- when we're gluing macaroni onto a pa- piece of paper in the shape of a cross, or giving little kids bracelets to wear with different colored beads think oh yes the spirit of God is at work in this he will overcome any language difficulties we have as adults trying to speak to children and he will help them and they'll believe same with our families I don't know about you but there are times with members of my own family I think I speak an entirely different language And I don't really know how to communicate any of this to them. And you think, Bill, you talk an hour a week to us. (laughs) I know, you're way better, way easier. We think about that. And so what confidence do we have? The only confidence we have is the fact that we know that the Spirit of God dwells within us and we know that he is the Spirit of truth. And I have the day of Pentecost always in my mind and I know that he can overcome any logistical, any linguistical issue and thus we can continue to persevere people in our offices people in our neighborhoods how do we get this message around the world because the spirit of God dwells within us we know that on the day of Pentecost that he overcame all of that 
And that's the picture, you see. That, that's the beginning. He says, okay, now this, I'm just giving you a snapshot of this, and this is what's going to come. And so as you read through the book of Acts, I'd encourage you to do that. You can see it happen in that first church, and you can see it continue to happen even in the church today because the Spirit of God dwells within us because we have the truth. And that's, that's who we are. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray for me and for us that we would know this, that we would know this. Father, I pray that it would humble us as it humbled those first disciples. You can only imagine the Apostle Peter saying, certainly not me, I'm the one who denied the Lord. The other disciples, certainly not us, we ran from him. And we think, certainly not us, because when we fill in the gap. But yet it is true that by your grace, You've given to us your spirit and you have given us your truth. I pray we'd be good stewards of it, that we wouldn't hide it under some bushel, but we would allow the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ to be shown, revealed. And this to all people, give us confidence. Give us courage. Give us grace. And we may be your witnesses. Father, we thank you for the return of our Romania kids. And we're pleased with the work that they've done. We pray that as you were with them, that in fact the gospel has gone forth again in that place, continues in that place, and will be, we trust, believed in that place. For those, Father, who are doing summer missions, we we pray for them. God, we pray for Caroline and Jenny and Savannah and Greg and Emily and Rachel and Colin and Kelsey. We pray for Mark and Brenda Brown. We pray for Carolyn Dinsdale, Father, many who are doing summer missions. We pray that, Holy Spirit, you would be with them. They would know that, that you would overcome any logistical issues that they might have, any linguistic issues they might have. They may speak the language of Jesus in a way that is understood and that is believed. Father, we thank you for blessing us, for being with us and giving us life. We pray for those who are unemployed that you would help them. Pray for those who are grieving that you would help them. And Father, we pray for those who are rejoicing that we would you would be with them. Father, we give you thanks for Scott and Carolyn's wedding on Friday. That you would bless their union and their family. We give you thanks for how you've worked, uh, Holy Spirit, in their lives. Father, never ceases to amaze us. Your grace to us. We are grateful, humbled people. Enable us, I pray, to live in such a way that would show your glory. And this we pray in Jesus' name.